We welcome you to the media ministry of Denton Bible Church. Well, hello and good morning. Even if your two children kept you awake all night long, it's still a good morning as mine did. Uh, but maybe you are going through a struggle or a particular trial, maybe with a loved one or uh, some relationship. Um, today is a good day. Today is a good day. We have God. <laughs> we have God's people. Uh, we have God's word. And we have good news. So uh, let us continue to worship God through the preaching of his word. If you would, please turn now to Mark chapter 12. And we're going to be looking at verses 13 through 44. Now, that's like that, that's a big chunk of Scripture. And oftentimes, that particular group of verses is preached in individual chunks, but we're going to look at it all together because that is for a reason. Chapter 12 is really, it has two parts to it. You have part one where Jesus gives this uh, parable of Israel as a vineyard, and he's in the temple. All of chapter 12 takes place in the temple, and it's divided into two sections. And 1 through 12, Jesus gives that vineyard parable where he takes on all of the religious authorities in Israel and condemns them all. Part 2, verses 13 through 44, Jesus is now going to have kind of one-offs with each one of these groups. And uh, there's a distinct break between these two sections. Another reason that verses 13 and 44 go together is the chiastic structure. Um, remember, nothing in your Bible is by accident. Every, every arrangement, everything is done for a particular reason. And if you look on the screen you'll see that there is a coin. This, this passage begins with a coin. This passage ends with a coin. And as you work through the passage, you'll move, we'll move to a widow, and then a widow, Lord, Lord. And so it creates a half of a, the letter chi, where we get the word chiasm. It's a literary device used by ancient writers. Some still use it today. In fact, all of St. Augustine's confessions is one giant chiasm. So uh, this text is a chiast, has a chiastic structure indicating that it is meant to be one preaching passage. Now, if you have your sermon notes, which you can get just by subscribing on our email, you are kind of got the advance on this. And with those, you can simply make some additional notes and go home and turn around and teach them to your family, uh, teach them to somebody you're discipling or your small group. And now you're doing what Jesus says to do, to be a, a disciple who goes and makes disciples. Um, and if you would, here's kind of where we're going with this. Uh, excuse kind of the crude example, but if you can picture a boxing rink and Jesus is in one corner and the, and, and the next corner you have the Herodians and the Pharisees and they're gonna come on the offense, offensive and take on Jesus. Jesus will deal with them. And then you have corner one, two, and then three, Jesus is going to have an encounter with the Sadducees. Jesus will deal with them. And then in corner number four, Jesus is going to have an encounter with the scribes. And then after dealing with all three or all groups of all of his opponents, he's going to kind of go into the center of the ring and take ownership. 
okay? He's going to go on the offensive. And so that's how this is going to kind of work. He's going to go from corner to corner to corner with these opponents and then take center stage. So if you look with me at verse 13, then they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to him in order to trap him in a statement. They, if you look up in verse 12, were seeking to seize him. They, from the previous passage, where all the temple authorities are now sending people, these groups of people now to come and uh, try to trap Jesus in a statement. That word trap there is used for trapping animals. They're trying to seize Jesus in his own words to uh, destroy him. And we see that they send the Herodians and the Pharisees. Now, for Jesus, immediately, he would know something is up. You know, apart from him being omniscient, he would see these two groups, these two people that are unlikely bedfellows. It would be strange to see the Herodians and the Pharisees walking together. The Herodians were uh, as obnoxious governmentally and politically to the Pharisees as the Sadducees were obnoxious to the Pharisees theologically, okay? The Herodians were a group of Jewish supporters of the Herod dynasty, specifically Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas was the son of Herod the Great, and so they were this Jewish uh, sect of people, they weren't quite secular, but they were more nationalistic and um, and were supporters of a kind of pseudo-religious Herod. In contrast to them, their opponents were actually the Pharisees, and the Pharisees were a strict uh, uh, religious group that kind of influenced the masses. They're kind of the grassroots leaders in Israel. And they observed all of the Old Testament from Genesis to Malachi. But what got them into trouble is they created ordinances and statutes uh, to help them follow the law that began to replace the authority of God's word. And so their traditions and oral uh, decrees became more important to God's word. And so to see these two groups together, immediately we recognize there's an unlikely alliance going on here. And in verse 14, they came and said to him, teacher, we know that you're truthful, you defer to no one, you're not partial to any, you teach the way of God and truth. Now, this is what you call deceptive flattery. All these things are true, but they don't believe it. Jesus really does come from God. He really does. He really isn't partial to any. All these things are true, but they don't believe it. And then they ask Jesus this question. They say, is it lawful to pay a poll tax to Caesar or not? Shall we pay or shall we not pay? And so the poll tax was this kind of odious stench to the Jew as a reminder of Roman rule. The poll tax was a tax that went directly into Caesar's treasury. And it's a reminder that uh, they're walking in disobedience to God. Anytime there's a Gentile ruler over Israel, it's a reminder that uh, this is God's judgment of them for not faithfully walking in obedience to his word. And the coin that they're referring to is a denarius. Now on the denarius, one side of it has the inscription, has a, an, a mint, a print of Caesar, and then it says, uh, son of the divine Augustus, the son of God. And on the other side, it says high priest. 
And so you can see why this is a loaded question. This is a real issue to pay the poll tax, not only to in a group that is oppressing you, but to even have a coin that said high priest and son of God was tantamount to blasphemy. And so this is a repulsive thing to the Jew. And what they're doing is they're trying to catch Jesus in an either or, uh, with an either or statement. Either you support the Herodians and you pay the tax, but then you fall out of favor with the Pharisees and the rest of the people in Israel because they're the kind of the grassroots people. Or you say, we shouldn't pay the tax. You're still in favor with the Pharisees but then now you fall out of favor with the Rhodians and could be considered a re revolutionary belligerent, a usurper of authority and power, and now you have the government on your back. And so they're expecting an either-or answer. They're, this is really a, a very clever trap. And in verse 15, we really see Jesus do some masterful argumentation here. But he, knowing their hypocrisy, said to them, why are you testing me? Bring me a denarius to look at. I always think it's interesting that he's not the one with the denarius. And they brought one and he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they were amazed at him. Why were they amazed at him? Well, the argument here is that, that Jesus is making is whenever he looked at the coin, he said, the thing that has the image of someone belongs to that someone. That's the argument. The denarius has the image of Caesar. Therefore, it belong, rightfully belongs to Caesar. That word in verse 15 that says, pay, that is pay, shall we pay this? is the word didomi, it means to give. And in verse 17, when Jesus says render to Caesar, that word render is the same word, but it's in a compound form. It's apodidomi, meaning give back. And so Jesus is saying, give back to Caesar the coin because it has his image and rightfully belongs to him. But the question is, what does Jesus mean when he says, render to God the things that are God's? Now, if you look up at verse 16, when Jesus took the coin, he said, whose likeness is this? That word likeness is the word icon. That's where we get the word icon, often translated image. What Jesus is doing here is he's quoting Genesis 1.26 from the Septuagint. Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And so Jesus says, give back to Caesar what is his because that coin bears his image. But you, human being, who bears the imago dei, the image of God, rightfully belong to God. So give yourself to God. And so he brilliantly uses a both and answer. Let me read to you a quote by St. Augustine on this text. We are God's money. 
But we are like coins that have wandered away from the treasury. What was once stamped upon us has been worn down by our wandering. The one who restamps his image upon us is the one who first formed us. He himself seeks his own coin as Caesar sought his coin. It is in this sense, he says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. To Caesar his coins, to God your very self. Brilliant. Humans who are made in the image of God rightfully belong to God. His thumbprint is upon you. He has authority over your life. Out of all the created order, only you resemble God in a particular form and fashion. Only you are the mint of his treasury. And so Christians, the disciple who follows Jesus Christ is one who apodidomies, is the one who gives back his or her life to God because they recognize this ownership. And so don't take that lightly when I say God owns you because that can be a very fearful thought to think that God owns me, that I belong to God, that I am made in his image, therefore he created me and I owe everything to him. And so in doing this, Jesus is calling the nation of Israel back to God and he's calling the disciple to recognize God's ownership over their life. But that is a scary thing in a sense. And so what happens next, Mark arranges this next encounter with the Sadducees to bring us comfort in the dependability of God. But what we see here is that God's image is upon you. When Jesus says, render to God that which is God's, he's saying, you bear the image of God, give yourself to God. Just as God, Caesar owns this coin, God owns Caesar. God owns you because we bear the image of God. And Jesus wants us to be comforted in that, knowing that he's dependable, that God is faithful, that we can trust God. And so the scene shifts. Jesus gives this both and to the Herodians and to the Pharisees. He stumps them. They're amazed by this. And now some Sadducees come his way. Now, the Sadducees are another very interesting group of people. They were a strict religious sect, but in a very different way. They, unlike the Pharisees, only held to the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. Everything outside of that, they didn't consider authoritative. And they were kind of the aristocratic class of the day. They were kind of the uh, religious aristocracy. No longer was the temple controlled by the Levitical priesthood. It was controlled by the Sadducees. And it kind of, the priesthood kind of became a dynastic order. And they were also in charge of the Sanhedrin, the high court of the day that was controlled by the Sadducees. And so even though they were a minority group and didn't have the masses on their side, they were kind of an elite, powerful group of people. And they had some unique theology. They rejected, not only did they reject the majority of the Old Testament, but they also didn't believe in the afterlife. They, what they, when you think of Sheol, which is the Old Testament kind of holding place of the righteous and the wicked with the dividing line, if you know what I'm talking about, 
in the, out of the Gospels. They believe that when you die, you just cease to exist. And the only thing that's left is your legacy. And so what they're going to do in this encounter with Jesus is they're going to use Moses, who everybody accepts as authoritative, as an argument to show the absurdity of the afterlife, of the resurrection. And when we come full circle, we'll actually see what this has to do with God's ownership over you. So they're going to use Moses to make an argument why nobody should believe in the afterlife. And in verse 19, they say to Jesus, teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves behind a wife and leaves no child, his brother should take the wife and raise up offspring to his brother. Now, they're, he's, they're quoting Deuteronomy 25.5. This is called the Leveret Law. Lever means brother-in-law in Latin. And the idea behind the Leveret Law was that if um, a husband died, the widow would most likely in the ancient world be left to begging or even worse. And so if there was a brother in the family, she would become his wife, provided there were no children, and he would care for her and they would hopefully have a child so that the line of the deceased would carry on through that and the uh, inheritance would go to that child. So it was kind of a social uh, safety net, but it was also to preserve the family line. And they're going to give a hypothetical situation they're going to say that there are these seven brothers and brother number one, he dies. And the widow whom bore no children now marries brother number two. Well, he dies and there are no children. And then so she marries widow number three and he dies. So on all the way to brother number seven. And so what they're going to do here is they're going to use the law of Moses, the Leveret law, quoting Deuteronomy 25 to show that the afterlife is silly. In verse 23, because she was married to all seven men, they say, in the resurrection, when they rise again, which one's wife will she be? For all seven had her as wife. So their logic here is that because they were all, because she married all seven of those brothers in this life, in the afterlife, when all seven brothers are alive again, she can't simultaneously be married to all seven at the same time. Therefore, there can't be an afterlife, Jesus. Look at Moses. Even Moses agrees. And so uh, what Jesus will do in verse 24, he responds to them and says, is this not the reason you are mistaken, that you do not understand the scriptures or the power of God. And so Jesus' response to the Sadducees, it says that you're mistaken in two ways. Number one, you misunderstand the scripture. And number two, you misunderstand the power of God. The way you misunderstand the scriptures, Sadducees, is in verse 25. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. And so what Jesus is saying that is, when a person dies, like most covenants, that covenant ends. The Mosaic covenant ended with the death of who? Christ. Paul will say in Romans chapter 7 that for the married woman is bound by law to her husband while he is living. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law concerning her husband. And so they're misunderstanding the scriptures. And they're also misunderstanding that the divine design for marriage in creation 
was to exercise dominion and stewardship through procreation. That as families are formed and as these image bearers procreate, they display the glory of God by virtue of being his image bearers to this newly created order. That they display who God is to the physical world around them. And that when they die in this life, that divine design ceases. And it expires at death. And so like the angels, they neither procreate, but just because they die, they don't cease to exist, but move from life to life. Death does not mean to cease to exist. It means to be separated. And so when you die, you are separated from the land of the living. And so that is how they misunderstand the scriptures, that they misunderstand the covenantal relationship of marriage. And so what Jesus is doing, he's actually using Moses like they did to show where they were wrong. And then in verse 26, he shows how they misunderstand the power of God. But regarding the fact that the dead rise again, have you not read in the book of Moses in the passage of the burning bush, this is Exodus chapter three, how God spoke to him saying, I am, present tense, the Lord, the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are greatly mistaken. Notice Jesus didn't say, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, but now that they're dead, I'm not. No, he is the I am. And so in context, this Exodus chapter three passage, this is the covenantal promise that God is reminding to Moses that he made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and is now making a promise to Moses. And in context, what is Moses's issue? Fear, he's afraid he's going to die. And so Jesus is saying that God is not only the God in this life in the present, but he's also the God of the life of the future. That his authority is not only now, but is in the future. That he is the God of eternity to eternity. His ownership of you doesn't just exist in this realm, Sadducees, but his authority extends into the next realm of life. And so that brings great comfort to the man or woman of God who is called to recognize God's ownership of their life. That he's not only your God in this life, but his, he's made a covenantal promise according to his word to be your God now and the future. And when you can trust God in the now, and when you can trust God in the future, you can trust God with all things. When Jesus is quoting, what he did here is he kind of upped the ante. They quote Moses to try to make their argument. Jesus quotes Moses to show where they're wrong, but then directly quotes God himself. And he says, I am the God. It's the term, it's the word Yahweh from the verb Hayah, to be. And in that kind of covenantal name of God, it does express his eternality and his covenant relationship. But I'll never forget my Hebrew professor, Dr. Chisholm, who is kind of a leading expert in Hebrew says, a good understanding of the term Yahweh, I am, is I am your ever-present help in a time of need. I am your ever 
present help in a time of need. Not only in this present life, when you apodidomi, whenever you give your life to God because he formed and created you and put his face upon you, but also God is your ever-present help in the future, that he is dependable and you can trust him now and always. And so we take comfort as the people of God who recognize his authority and ownership over our lives by virtue of his authority from eternity to eternity. This is your God. He is your ever-present help, ever-present help in a time of need. Do you believe that? God is your ever-present help in a time of need. Are you in a time of need this morning? Me too. God is your ever-present help. And so Mark arranges these two stories to show that you can trust God now and forever. He is dependable. He is in covenant relationship with you through the Lord Jesus Christ. When you think about a life insurance policy, when one mate dies, it activates the benefits of that policy upon the remaining party. Whenever you were converted and you died to a life marked by sin, you were regenerated and born again to a new life. And at that moment, you entered into a covenantal relationship with God where all the benefits of Christ were bestowed and imputed onto you. That everything that Christ did, his holy perfection, living out God's word according to the law, completely and perfectly from birth to death was imputed and given to you as if you lived that life. And so God's covenantal life insurance policy was enacted upon your life at the moment you were converted. And just as Christ died and rose again and is seated at the right hand of the Father and lives on in an authoritative fashion as king, you too live on in covenant relationship with God. And so we are a people that take comfort in giving ourselves to God. He is your ever-present help in a time of need, now and forever. And that's why Mark isn't just randomly putting stories together here. The chiastic structure shows us this is one theological thrust. That you can trust God now and you can, tr- it, I don't know about you, but I kind of go about life pretty confidently in my salvation. But then I can express great insecurity and fear and kind of petty minor things. But how backward is that? If I can trust God with my eternal soul and where I'm going to spend eternity, certainly I should be able to trust him in the day today. And so take comfort, people, that God is faithful now, forever, always, from eternity to eternity, and in covenant relationship, he is your ever-present help in a time of need. And recognizing this, the Sadducees, go their own way, and then finally, having moved from the Herodians and the Pharisees with the coin and the Sadducees with the widow and the afterlife and the dependability of God's promises, the scribes show up. Now, a scribe is kind of, the term kind of describes who they are. They were copyists. They would 
write the law of God, but they were also, more accurately, experts in the law. Oftentimes, scribes were Pharisees. These were people who were experts in the law. They were like lawyers when it came to God's word. And one of the scribes heard Jesus arguing with these Sadducees in verse 28 and recognizes, man, he answered them well. And so he asked Jesus a question. What is the commandment? What commandment is the foremost of all? Now, Jesus does something that uh, every follower of Yahweh would have to do to, to show their dedication to God, to the God of Israel. If you ever see a Hasidic Jew or an Orthodox Jew, they'll, if they're wearing glasses, they'll take them off. They'll cover their eyes and turn to the east and you might see them just moving their mouth. They're saying the Shema. Verse 29 is the Shema. Shema Israel, Adonai Elohinu, Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. One in the sense there is only one God and one in the sense he is unique. He is the true God. And so Jesus, if asked what is the foremost commandment, has to first off say this. And he's quoting Deuteronomy chapter six. And notice the scribe asked the question, what is the foremost commandment? And Jesus, quoting the Shema, will then do something. He'll give two commandments. And he says in verse 30, you shall love the Lord God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no, great, there is no other commandment, singular, greater than these, plural. So what is the foremost commandment? He gives two. He says there's no other commandment than these, singular and plural, letting us know that this first and second commandment are interrelated and inseparable. That one, we love God first as the basis of our ability to fulfill the second command, loving God. I mean, loving neighbor, excuse me. And so we are told in the first commandment to love God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, and with all our strength. Now, those aren't divisions of your personhood. What that means is that every part of your being, all of who you are, is God's. And that you are to love God with your whole person. You are not to withhold yourself from loving God. And then in the second commandment, we are told you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Notice the standard for, what it, for how it is you are to love your neighbor. The standard for your love for, those, for everyone who crosses your path is yourself. And so there is a positive element to loving your neighbor and there's a negative element to loving your neighbor. Positively, I want people to treat me kindly. I want people, I want, uh, or positively, I, yeah, I want to pe treat people kindly. I want to help people when I can. And I want to pray for people. And so if I am the standard for how I treat people, then I should do those things because I want them to treat me kindly. I want them to help me and I want them to pray for me. That's the standard. And then there's a negative element for loving your neighbor. What I don't want done to me, I shouldn't do to others. I don't want people to be rude. I don't want people to uh, ignore. I don't want people to gossip. So I shouldn't be rude, ignore, or gossip. And so what I want done for me, 
I actively do to others. What I don't want done to me, I don't do to others. And the basis of loving your neighbor is founded first on loving God. We cannot rightfully love our neighbor without rightfully knowing and loving God. And God is perfectly lovely. God is perfectly loving. He fills our world with delightful colors, things that tantalize your eye. He gives us sounds that make us want to dance and move and get us going. (laughs) He fills our world with smells that bring back memories from decades ago. He gives us flavors that make our palate dance. He gives us textures that bring our bodies pleasure. He protects us and delivers us. He hears us and he answers us. He heals and preserves, he forgives and he pardons. God is perfectly loving and lovely. He loves you so much that he even sent his only son. If he wasn't willing to withhold his own son, what is he not willing to withhold for you? And so God is perfectly loving, he is perfectly lovely. Every single thing that we have, every good thing that we own is an undeserved gift of God. For the believer and unbeliever alike, even the ability to process that thought, the ability to process what I just said, either to ignore, to agree, or to disagree with that is an act of God's gift because he is presently holding all things together by the power of his will. He is presently holding the molecular structure that is allowing your brain to connect neurons and to think and to process what is being said. He's allowing language to exist according to logic and reason. Every good thing that we have is an undeserved gift of God. And when we fill our minds with these deep thoughts and fill our minds with these pregnant truths, they go into our heart and they change our affections. They change our affections and draw us toward God. They give us desires to love God and to hate what is evil. And so a God whose power extends from eternity to eternity, a God who is perfectly loving is worthy of total devotion, complete devotion with all of your being. And so... God's image is on you. Take comfort. He is the authoritative one in this life and the next. So you can love God with your all because of his nature. Love is according to the nature of God. First John says, if you do not love, you do not know God, point blank. God is love. It's one of the key attributes of his person. That's why we first, the basis for loving other people is found in God. And so if we are not loving God, it'll be displayed by not loving our neighbor. Loving God and worshiping God will be manifested by loving your neighbor. But loving your neighbor does not mean getting along. Oftentimes, if you love God, you are going to love what God loves And therefore, you're not going to love what the world is calling you to love and they will hate you. 
And so just because in your, in your exercise and manifestation of loving God by loving your neighbor, that is how you display God's love. It's one major function. You may draw hatred because you love what is good and you don't love as the world loves. Love does not equal love. Love is love is one of the silliest statements I've ever heard. It's nonsensical. Love is found in the person and nature of God. God is love, but love is not God. See the difference. And so Jesus wouldn't say to, wouldn't tell us to love our enemies if we didn't have them. And so often your exercise of loving God will draw negative attention, but it doesn't change how you respond by loving your neighbor as yourself. The standard still remains. You positively love everyone the way you wanna be treated. Negatively, you don't do what you don't want done to you. And the only way, the only way we can do and live out such a high calling is if we know who God is, that we are his inheritance. We belong to God. You do not belong to yourself, but that's good because he is our ever-present help in a time of need and this life in the future. So I can give my all to God. And so this Sadducee then will quote, I'm sorry, the scribe will quote what Jesus said back to him and Jesus will tell him in verse 34, he will say, Jesus saw that he answered intelligently and said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. In other words, you're almost there, but you're not. You have to make somebody your king to enter into the kingdom of God. And so far we've had coin, Pharisees and Herodians. We've had widow, Sadducees. And then we have scribe, Lord. And we also have Lord and kingdom. Now again, we're gonna see the chiastic structure go back. We're gonna see Lord and king, widow and coinage. And so all of these episodes are not random. God has placed everything in a order for a reason. And it's for the reader. It's not just a random collection of facts about Jesus. They are arranged and placed for a specific reason. It's for the people of God. And so Jesus will now go on the offensive, having, he will now take center stage. He's going into the middle of the ring. And in verse 35, this is, this is his last public teaching in the temple. He'll only teach privately to his disciples hereafter. In verse 35, Jesus began to say, as he taught in the temple, how is it that the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? And so uh, Christ um, comes from the word Christos, from the Hebrew Meshiach, where we get the word Messiah. And the scribes are correct in knowing that the Messiah, the Christ, will come from the lineage of David. But their understanding of who the Christ is, is incomplete. And so Jesus is going to kind of notice that he always takes what's given to him as an argument against him, uses the, the authority of that argument as his own, and then ups the ante. And this is what Jesus will do again here. 
He's coming to, he's first beginning with a place of agreement. Hey, everyone agrees that the Christ is of the line of David. And now Jesus is going to um, quote a psalm and then pose a question. In verse 36, he quotes Psalm 110. Psalm 110 is a psalm about the exalted Messiah who sits at the right hand of God, who will one day come to rule and reign in total authoritative justice upon this planet. Okay? And so he quotes Psalm 36, or 110 in verse 36. David, the author of Psalm 110, himself said by the Holy Spirit, the Lord said to my, David, my Lord, sit at my right hand, position of authority as a king, until, temporal clause, I put thine enemies beneath thy feet. And so the kind of, and then verse 37, he asks the question, David himself calls him Lord. And so in what sense is he his son? And so Jesus, the logic here, the argument that Jesus is making is, how can the Christ, whom everybody agrees comes from the line of David, also be David's Lord, David's kurios. How can the superior King David call, the, call his son the inferior Lord, kurios? Well, Jesus is doing something here, and it's quite profound. In verse 36 and 37, we see the Lord said to my Lord, verse 37, David himself calls him Lord. Lord, 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 kurios is the word. Back up when, back up to 29 and 30, referring to the greatest commandment we see here, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. You shall love the Lord. Lord, 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 same word, kurios. Now, if Jesus just affirmed that the Christ, and if David affirms that the Christ is Lord, and we're told in verse 29, there is one Lord. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. What is Jesus affirming here? Jesus is affirming that as Christ, he is both Lord and man, both God and King. Previous section, Lord, not far from the kingdom. This section, Lord, future kingdom. And Mark is asserting the arrangement of these passages are to show that fulfilling the greatest commandment to love God and neighbor is mediated through loyally following Jesus, who is king now, you're not far from the kingdom, and will one day execute judgment as king in the future until I make thine enemies thy footstool. Now, future, coin, I am the God of Abraham and Isaac, Jacob. He is just as much their God then as he is he, now as he was then. Kingdom, king, one Lord, Lord. And so we express our love for God and loyalty to Christ. It is mediated through him. He is the great God and king, the one who is the greater than David, the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And so we love God mediated by following Jesus as king, by recognizing him as king. We recognize his ownership over us. We are his coinage. 
We trust him now and forever. We love God, the Lord, our God. Jesus is the Lord and King. And so we express the great commandment through loyally following Jesus as King. When it rains, I like umbrellas. And I do everything I can to get my body underneath that umbrella. If there's a member of my body outside of that umbrella, I immediately know because it gets wet. And so I am constantly struggling to change the angle, to make an adjustment, to get a new umbrella, to fit all of my life under it so that it doesn't get rained on. Loyally following Jesus means that we bring every arena of our life under the kingship of Christ. That we do not withhold any element of our life from him. Whether it be some pet sin that we've justified or whether it be some obscure element that we think God doesn't care about. But as followers of the king, we express our love for him and neighbor by bringing all of our life under his kingship. And it is in this next section where Jesus explicitly shows what it looks like to love God with your all. Verse 38 through 40, Jesus warns of self-inflating religious piety. He says in verse 38, beware of the scribes who like long robes, respectful greetings, chief seats, places of honor, and then long prayers. And you see that little section about the scribes is bracketed by long and long. Everything in between shows their kind of pompous piety, their pseudo-religiosity. And that's why Jesus can justly, justly and rightly say at the end of verse 40, these will receive greater condemnation. Why? Well, people that love respectful greetings and chief seats and places of honor and like to display how religious they are by long prayers and want to make their outward appearance about how loyal they are to God, well, guess what? They're not really loving God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. They're really loving themselves first. And so immediately we see that these are those who are breaking the first commandment to love the Lord God. And then we see that verse 40, they devour widows' houses. They're victimizers. They victimize the widows and the vulnerable. Here they're breaking the second commandment to love their neighbor as themselves. And so Jesus is just owning all these folks. And then he does something amazing in this final section. And if you don't get anything out of today, this is where it's at. In verse 41, Jesus sits down. Uh-oh, it's a teaching moment, all right? Everybody's been coming to him, coming to him, coming to him. He makes a quote. He poses a question. He makes a declaration that their condemnation is just, just like he did with all the temple authorities in the previous passage. And now he's going to do something amazing. He sat down opposite the treasury and began observing how the multitude were putting in money into the treasury. And many rich people were putting in large sums. In verse 42, we have another widow, three widows in this passage. 
He says, a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which amount to a cent. So we have, enough, we have more coinage here. Coinage, coinage, widow, widow, Lord, Lord. And this coinage is so small. It's the amount of one sixty-fourth of a denarius. A denarius was a day's wage. So this is maybe six or seven minutes worth of paid labor. And in Jesus, in verse 43, calling his disciples to himself, something is about to happen. Something with this widow catches Jesus' eye. She has stopped the attention of the king, and it's now focused on her. She gets the attention of the Lord. He stops, he sits down, and now he calls his disciples to himself. And he says in verse 44, or in 43, truly I say to you, this widow put in, this, widow, this poor widow put in more than all the contributors to the treasury. How so, Jesus? How did this poor widow who put in 1 64th of a denarius put in more than the many rich people who were putting in large sums? Jesus explains in verse 44, for, for they all put in out of their surplus, but she out of her poverty put in all she owned, all she had to live on. What is the greatest commandment? to love the Lord God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. This widow put in more than all the contributors for they all put in out of their surplus. She put in all that she owned, all that she had to live on. All, 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 all. And what does it mean to love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? It means to love God with your whole person. And here's where it gets good. Jump down to that last clause in verse 44. She put in all she owned. Here's the last clause. All she had to live on. In the Greek, it is holon ton ton bion altes. Holon, whole or all. Ton bion, bion from bios, from bio, where we get life. Altes of her. A rough translation is literally all the life of her. A smooth translation is all her life. What does it mean to love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? It means to love the Lord with all your life. She put in more than the coins. She put in all her life to God. She is the manifestation of a model disciple who gives her all to God. She put in all her life. Life, that is the direct translation. More than just coins. So how are we to love God? By giving him all our life out of utmost love and devotion. Amazing. Let's put it all together. Coin, widow, Lord, Lord, widow, coin. Ownership in this life and in the next. Commanded to love the Lord God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Mediated through following Christ the King. Modeled by the widow who gave her all to God. And so we as disciples 
who claim Christ as king are to love God to the utmost with all of our being. We are to love him with all we are. We are to withhold nothing from him. And so this is, this is not a deprecation on wealth or the wealthy, but what matters to God is not how much a person has and can give without any cost. That's what the scribes did. The widow's devotion to God led her to give at a great personal cost. The scribe, if you recall, quoted the commandment back to Jesus, but it is the widow who obeyed it. And so how do we give our all to God and love for him and neighbor? What does it look like? How do we get there? Well, first, we need to get rid of the irrational fear of giving our all to God. The very first person that discipled me used to talk about giving your, all of your life for all of God. And I would have this irrational fear that if I gave all my life to God, God would do something cruel to make my life miser miserable by becoming some monk out in the remotest parts of Africa, living off twigs and I don't know. An irrational fear. Plenty, there are plenty of people who want to go to Africa for the, God, for the cause of Christ. He's not calling me to do that. It's an irrational fear. God is not going to crush your dreams. He's going to give you new and better dreams. That whenever you give your all to God, his desires become your desires and your desires come to pass because God's desires and yours are the same and everything according to the will of God comes to pass. And so we need to get rid of the irrational fear of giving our all to God. Secondly, we need to recognize God's ownership over our life. God's ownership over us. All we have and all we are belong to God. Everything belongs to God. And so like Cinderella and the glass slipper, it's a perfect fit. God's ownership is how we were designed to be. But too often we're like those rotten, evil stepsisters doing foot origami, trying to jam that sucker in there and we're even willing to cut off a few toes to try. But you are customized and designed by God to be his. And recognizing his ownership over you is a good thing. His glory is your good. His glory is your good. So recognize God's ownership over you. And finally, we can give our all to God in utmost love for him by simply knowing the dependability and faithfulness of God, that he is faithful and true now and forever in this life and the next. He is your ever-present help in a time of need. And so God is 100% all the time dependable and good. And so because of his nature and who he is, it is a wonderful thing to recognize his ownership over us, to give our all to him, and then to walk by faith, trusting that he is dependable. And so let's give our all to God in love for him and for our neighbor. Amen. Well, if today, if Christ is not your king, Scripture says that you are separated from God and that to rightfully 
come into good standing with God, Christ must become your king. And the way he becomes your king is by placing your trust in him, turning from rejecting Christ today and turning to trusting in Christ today, that he died for your sins, left in your sins, you were under God's judgment. But trusting in Christ, there's a propitiatory act that God's wrathful justice against your sin was dealt with on Christ. And when you trust in Christ, Christ's perfect righteousness becomes yours. And now you are in a right standing with God by grace alone, by, through faith alone, in Christ alone. So make Christ the Lord of your life today if you have never done that. And if today's your first time that you've done that, we would love to meet you. We'd love to know that. We'd love to help you to get started on the journey, the wonderful, fulfilling, lifelong journey of a disciple who makes disciples. If this is your first time at DBC, we'd love to meet you. Our team will be at starting point. We'd love to talk with you. We'd love to meet you. If today's your first time to trust in, the Christ, trust in Christ, let us know. And as we sing these closing songs, let's sing like we're giving our all to God out of love for him. Let's consider and think deeply about what it looks like to love God with our all. And let's express that in corporate song and worship as we close out this Sunday and prepare for Monday through Saturday. Father in heaven, we thank you that we are privileged creatures, members of the new creation. Thank you, God, that you have shown us that whenever we try to deny creation, it causes harm to the creature. But whenever we live according to creation and divine revelation, it is great blessing and joy. Even in the trials and the hardships, you are there because you are our ever-present help in a time of need. God, I pray that you would help us and enable us by your spirit to love you with our all as we seek to follow our Lord and King, our great God, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is through him I pray, amen.